like the show? Want to listen to episodes early? Consider becoming a patron. Starting at the $3 a month level, patrons get access to a custom patron-only feed where we put out episodes of Upstairs Studio podcasts like the Child Care Bar and Grill, Miss Becky's Classroom, That Early Childhood Nerd, the Renegade Rules podcast, and others early. That feed is just for patrons. You could be one of them. Go to patreon.com slash playvolutionhq or click the link in the show description to learn more. Hey everyone, it's Heather. I know you're here to listen to the podcast, but did you know I also offer all kinds of online consulting services? Stuff like webinars, book studies, curriculum training and consultation, and even companion activities for podcast episodes to use for staff development. If you're interested, you can check out my website at www.thatearlychildhoodnerd.com or you can email me at heather at thatearlychildhoodnerd.com. Thanks for listening. Grab your highlighters. Can't find them? They're probably right there in your pocket protector. It's time for that Early Childhood Nerd Podcast. Let's get nerdy. Here's Heather. Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of That Early Childhood Nerd. I'm Heather Burnt-Santi, and today I am joined by author Houston Kraft. And I know, Houston, you do lots of things besides just being an author, but um, I know of you now because of this book that you wrote. Um, so tell folks about yourself and why, um, why you do what you do and what, it, that, what that is. Yeah, what are the buckets of my identity? (laughs) (laughs) Author, um, thanks Heather. The uh, author is one of the newest ones. I'm a first time author, uh, which is super exciting. And my authorship was born out of my work in education. I've worked in education for the past 10 years. Uh, I was a speaker for many years, occasionally still speak, but uh, I worked with about 600 schools. Uh, And then I was like, this is unsustainable. (laughs) I'm (laughs) spending way too many days in rental cars in Hampton Inns. How do we expand that message and uh, and really do what I have believed in the whole time, which is how do you empower passionate educators to build those relationships um, that I was advocating through stories. But then now I get to do the work of building tools, Uh which I love being a tool provider. So uh, I co-founded a company called Character Strong which serves schools all over the country and world, um, working on social emotional learning and character development, pre-K through 12th grade. Mm -hmm. Uh, And then a lot of focus on adults, because as it turns out, that's where the work is most needed. (laughs) Yeah, I would agree with that. Um, However that came to be and whatever that that says for uh, where we need to go next, but I, I, I would agree. So, um, so I, uh, I chose a quote from the book The um, listeners know that's just our shtick. That's how we start the conversation. And if we ver- veer away from it, that's also fine. The audience is used to total rambling. <laughs> <laughs> we need a starting point though. Following the conversation, but I feel like I need to have the starting point. So in your book, which is called Deep Kindness, a revolutionary guide for the way we think, talk, and act in kindness. Um, You say, deep kindness requires something more than politeness or even an honest desire to help. It requires careful self-reflection, profound courage, a willingness to be humbled, 
and hard-earned social and emotional skills. Um, I've done a lot of highlighting in the book, but that was one that really hit me um, because so so I, as I told you in our prep emails, um, most of the folks listening are working with children really birth to to five or six, um, or training the adults who work with those children. And this mm. comes up a lot and, and people will say, well, I'm always nice to the children. Like, I don't feel like I have anything to work on in terms of building relationships with children. But when I see the practice, they just don't realize how sort of, how much deeper it could be, I guess. Mm. So that's what yeah. I wanted to hear you sort of expand on deep kindness and what that, what that quote means. Why does it take courage and all those other things? and go yeah yeah, yeah. okay uh how much time do we have um yeah i mean the the age group we're, we're we're talking about and i know that you're passionate about we're in prime language learning mode there and uh and language you know words have always been fascinating to me because we have uh the dictionary definitions of words we have cultural definitions of words and then we have experiential definitions of words and all three of those come together to shape our paradigms. And those start very early. Right. Kindness is a great example. The way we speak about kindness, even from the time kids are really, really young, it almost always implies that it's just something you're supposed to be. And uh, as my friend Dexter Davis puts quite beautifully, we're not human beings, we're human becomings. Ah. So uh, yeah. how do you become kind when everyone around you, adults are saying, hey, you should do this thing, you should be this thing. And then you sort of zoom out and you think, okay, well, what is the, the definition that our culture is offering us? Because mm -hmm. culture, I think, tells us that kindness is uh, simple, that it's easy, that it's freely accessible all the time. And I hear that all the time, even from well-intentioned adults. It's like, why aren't people more kind? Why aren't kids more kind? It's free. And I'm like, it ain't free. <laughs> if it was free, we all like free stuff. And if it was free, we would give it a lot more freely, you know, and the world would be a much more kind place. The reality is the kind of kindness that is actually going to make an impact in people's lives or in, in our systems and our culture requires, it costs us time at the very least, energy or effort of some kind. And then as you go a little bit deeper, you realize that, that real deep kindness is gonna require some level of self-reflection to identify my gaps and where I can be humbled. Uh, it's gonna require uh, courage to overcome some of the insecurities that naturally prevent us from connection with ourselves or with others. Mm -hmm. And it's certainly going to require uh, at the deepest levels, a lot of, a lot of discomfort right? to listen to people who are different than us, uh, to identify perspectives and needs that are wildly far away from our personal lived experience. Mm -hmm. And so uh, I think that the danger especially at very young ages of, of just implying that kids should just be kind is that we are not honoring how hard it actually is. And in being reductionistic of it at a young age, we have people growing up thinking that it's this easy thing. And then we just have people assume that they're kind. When as I look around, I'm like, I don't know if we have the same definition. <laughs> it's more than absence of malice. Like, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's baseline, which I would describe in the book as nice, right? Nice is like, it's, it is sort of baseline. It's like, at least I'm not punching you actively, you know? <laughs> and, and niceness is, is, is honestly, I think oftentimes only happens in moments where it is comfortable or convenient to me. 
Yeah. Right. I'm going to get something in return. I have the time. I'm being put into a circumstance. And here's a community service day we do locally every year, whatever that is. Uh -huh. And it's this weird thing. I think we have a weird gap in our culture between skills and values. You know, yeah. you would never fix the bike on your, fix the chain on your bike and be like, oh, I'm an engineer now. <laughs> but sometimes people like do one big act of service per year and they're like, I'm a kind person. Yeah. I'm like, no, you got to earn that. You yeah. got to earn your way to that yeah. over time. So that's I, what that I, quote unpacks for me, at least to start. Funny, <laughs> such a funny um, way of thinking about it. Like I totally check the oil in my car and think my mechanic dad would be so proud, right? <laughs> it's, like, <laughs> it's the easiest thing to do in the car. Um, so what you said about um, not, realize, not realizing, not respecting how, how much work it is to be kind in this context of working with young children specifically, I think things like we say, you know, when you hit another, you know, one child hits another child and we say, oh, that's not nice. And we think we're teaching them to be nice, but we don't ourselves recognize if we don't understand the self-awareness and the, um, the courage and the depth that it takes to truly be kind, then how can we teach children how to do it? Mm. How can we accurately reflect for them if we aren't stopping to think ourselves? I hope that made sense. Um, no, perfectly put. Yeah, all absolutely. Out. Um, so you, you talked about um, being humbled and getting over our insecurities. And I'd like to hear you talk more about what that means in this conversation about being, being showing deep kindness. Like where does humility and insecurity come in? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, uh, you know, I think the way I frame insecurity, at least in the book, is is uh, insecurities are lies that we tell ourselves, and they're lies that didn't just come out of thin air. And I would argue they're also not lies that we're born with. Mm -hmm. They're lies that have been passed on to us um, via family, via friends, through culture, sure. experience, circumstance, trauma, and all of those things. Mm -hmm. uh, and I think for those in education or working with young people, or really just people who want to be conscious of how they show up in the world with other humans, I think one of the best things that we can help young people cultivate is a filter through which they're able to process all the inbound data. You know, we are experiencing exponentially more inbound data on a daily basis than we have historically simply because we're exposed to a lot more of it through things like our phones through screens through computers through devices now, the average person is exposed to over 30 gigabytes of data per day over a hundred thousand words hours worth of ads you know most people spend six plus hours looking at a screen and you realize that our brains from an evolutionary standpoint haven't caught up to be able to parse through all that information quickly and discern which of this is actually helpful. Uh -huh. Is this thing actually true for me? Is it healthy for me? Right, because we get all this information of what's cool or what you should do, what you shouldn't do, what you look like, what you shouldn't look like, all the things that the world tells us constantly. And from a young age, especially as kids are getting devices earlier, they start to see all that, but they, they don't have a filter by which they're able to decide, do I keep this? Do I, do I toss it? Mm -hmm. And so what happens inevitably is those lies seep through and without proper filters or supports, and particularly those people that don't have strong role models in their life, they start to tell themselves this lie and they repeat it enough times that they start to speak in it as if it's a truth. Mm -hmm. uh, that if I don't achieve this kind of success, I'm not worthy people don't like me or accept me, I'm not good enough. 
if I fail, I'm a failure. I deserve to be punished. Right? I, you know, I, 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 looking this way, I should be ashamed of myself. Or this mistake I made, I am a mistake. Those sorts of things. <laughs> yeah, yes, sorry, we can stop. No. <laughs> <laughs> Enough examples, Houston. Uh, and I use all those because those are all ones that I've lived and uh -huh. in working with lots of young people, those are the things that come forward most frequently. Mm -hmm. Right, and we weren't born with these lies. These lies are cultivated over time slowly and you repeat them enough times and you, they start to sound like they're coming in your voice. And that feels in many ways uh, the most condemning version of all. I say shame is, is external criticism turned internal dialogue. Mm -hmm. And that is so damaging, we know, as people are developing their sense of identity and, and place in the world. So all that to say, <laughs> these insecurities, uh, I think sometimes we forget how much of connection reducers they can be. You know, that uh, my fear of failure could prevent me from speaking up uh, because I'm worried I'm not going to say the right thing. Yeah fear of rejection or embarrassment might prevent me from standing up for people because I risk being the next person laughed at. Mm -hmm. Or if I'm ashamed of who I am, then my attitude might be, how could I possibly help? You know, I'm broken myself. How could I possibly step in and help here? Yeah. And so for me to take, you know, many steps back, and if you're getting to work with very young people, one of the best gifts you can give young people is that gift of that filter to help people constantly question, hey, you know, you saw that thing you think that's healthy? You think that's true? Does that make sense to you? Is there another way to look at that? And offering different perspectives and giving them, cultivating that filter to allow them to feel empowered in parsing the data that all of us will inevitably get deluged with. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a hard ask, <laughs> but, <laughs> but so, so worth it. And think of the change we would see in in the world but also in schools and in relationships and in those places of care um if by just sort of switching um our thinking and going a little deeper um so so your your company i'll use that word but it is character strong called character strong right so yeah. that that brought to mind for me times when i've worked in school age programs and we did character education programs which essentially ended up being posters on the wall uh about what character looks like and what you should be. Um, what do you, what, how, how could we do it better than just posters on the wall? I think posters work great. You? <laughs> just kidding. No, no, okay. no, 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 just kidding. Uh, no, my, my genuine argument would be when we think about implementation, which is where programs live or die, uh, you know, you have a great research-backed program, but if you don't have implementation supports in place, then uh -huh. that thing's going to be ineffective. Right. Uh, so one of the categories of, of multiple categories in implementation is school-wide integration, which to me, I think about it as like, where else do you see, touch, feel, or experience things that you're teaching? So posters have a role to play, if not only as a like visual cue of a reminder of what we're learning about. But yeah, they are not the only thing. Right. They don't Please do it do themselves. Yeah. Um, no, I, and we're, we're big believers sort of on a philosophical level at Character Strong that uh, in two, two big categories. The first one is that social emotional learning and character development should be about helping equip young people with toolkits, not blueprints. Mm -hmm. So blueprints are that sort of like norming which we know through uh, a lot of conversations around equity and best practices asking kids to behave in a very certain way 
uh, almost always is asking them to norm to a white middle class behavioral set of standards. So we say, that's not what, we're, what we want from you. It's like respect looks like this. Now, the better question is, what does respect look like in your household? What do you need to feel respected or safe in a given environment? What does it look like to treat people like they're important? Mm -hmm. right? and, and asking kids to access their own experience, to have shared conversations, come up with agreements instead of norms, and then work on the skills that are required to bring those things to life. Right? Helping students identify the things that they care about and value and say, cool, these are the things you want to be about in your life. Well, what tools do you need to arrive there? What tools do you need to build the house that you want to build, not the house that we're telling you to build? Yeah. Which comes to part two, which is that intersection of character and social emotional learning, where a lot of times schools will think about them as two separate buckets. And, mm -hmm. and we believe that they need to intersect in the sense that character to us, the way we articulate it most often, is that character is an external behavior that is oftentimes only possible because of an internal set of skills. Right. I talk about in that quote you mentioned earlier, like those hard-earned social-emotional skills. Yeah. I would say the behavior of something like kindness is predicated on whether or not I have some skills of emotional regulation, yeah. uh, I, perspective taking, right? Those yeah. sorts of things that inform my actions. Yeah, I think too often in early childhood, also in elementary schools that I, where I've seen um, some of this, social-emotional learning is sort of a euphemism for behavior control. It's like you will you will show me that you have social and emotional development when you stop doing these things that are hard for me to mm -hmm. deal with <laughs> instead of yeah. what you're talking about understanding those skills that need to happen to get from here to there the goal might not be a problem but if we just expect it because of external forces punishments consequences we're not equipping them the way that we could be by focusing on those in-between steps and the internal stuff. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and one of the more poignant articles that we read about, uh, uh, especially during this time where equity and social justice have come to the surface a lot. Um, one of the quotes that we've talked about a lot internally at Character Strong is SEL can be white supremacy wrapped in a hug. Holy shit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I can, I can get behind that. Yeah, and it's a that's a, a the heavy-handed version of it. But to your point, if yeah. if it is about behavior norming, uh -huh. and bringing people to a certain set of standards, who's that going to affect most disproportionately? Who are the ones that need? Who are we looking at them through a deficit lens? Right, because the the standard is going to be ourselves, right? The people in power are going to be the ones saying, "Here's what it should look like when you're doing it right." Um, <laughs> without without us even knowing without without those people in power even knowing um that it Absolutely. could be different somewhere else because this has been my only experience so yeah hmm. yeah that's a good one what article was did you say that was from an article do you know off the top of your head what it was because people are going to eat it yeah we will find it we'll, <laughs> okay. dig up. we'll try to get it in the show notes <laughs> yes thank you um so let me think what else uh what else came up uh oh so i wanted to ask you to talk to um uh because uh, in the book you talk about this but the the throwing kindness around like confetti sort of idea the meme that's so popular right now and how what you're talking about differs from that kind of yeah i mean that comes back to the language piece of having worked in a lot of schools at this point you see i think probably 98 percent of schools that i've ever been at has kindness as a part of a mission statement, motto, acronym, 
something painted on the walls. <laughs> like yeah. It exists somewhere. Yeah. And just about every school I go to has some version of a poster to remind people that kindness is important. <laughs> and one of the ones I see most frequently is throw kindness around like confetti. Yeah. And in the book, I, I gently say, I want to tear that poster down <laughs> <It's> always <laughs> because the way we speak about things shapes the way we act with things, right? Our paradigms, our perspectives on what a word means in the world is going to shape the way we act with them. And if we think of kindness as simple or as easy as confetti, you know, we have this natural part of us that when something is free to us, we don't prioritize it in our life, right? If I spend a lot of money purchasing an expensive thing, I'm going to allocate more time and energy to care for that thing. Right? Kindness is expensive. Mm -hmm. And if we don't allocate the proper resources and attention and care to it, well, then are we actually practicing kindness? <laughs> or are we just being nice when it's comfortable and convenient to us? Yeah. Um, and so the poster that I would love to rewrite and have live in every school is throw kindness around like it's the most important and meaningful resource we have. <laughs> right? It's That'd a wordier be the poster. poster. <laughs> It's a little wordier. Yeah, I've seen wordier <laughs> there. <laughs> yeah. uh, but to, uh, to that point and to I think the whole point is like, maybe we need a little bit more deafness and thoughtfulness uh, of language when it comes to kindness and spend more time unpacking it and, and less time posterizing it, I suppose. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Because one of the things that, that occurred to me, like I had always been sort of bugged by that because I've seen that poster in meme form all over my social media also. Um, it, it sort of always was not comfortable for me, but I couldn't really articulate. So I was really grateful that you did that for me. <laughs> and I, yeah. Now I've got that, that um, those words from your book that I can use. But um, what, what, what about... I, I guess I sort of also want to hear you talk about this in terms of being kind to colleagues in these settings. Like it's, of course, it's about children because that's why we're in these settings. But what about the adults who are with each other all day? How does this, how does this sort of carry over to their lived experiences together? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, uh, Dr. Clayton Cook, um, from the University of Minnesota. We work closely with him on implementation supports and science when it comes to our work. And he says, when it comes to school culture change, we are first and foremost in the business of adult behavior change. Yeah. Okay. And that's always a fun cringe line for people when we do professional development. Yeah. They're like, oh, okay, that means I have to do something. <laughs> now we know what you mean by it's hard. <laughs> yeah. Dang it. So this isn't just about instructional time. This is about like personal self-reflection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but that's always going to be the hardest work. So how do you encourage adult behavior change? Um, well, we have, you know, when, when my co-founder John was working inside of a school district, um, Clay, Dr. Cook actually came in and helped and provide like 16 proactive classroom strategies, all of which were research backed and helpful. But the reality is people are like 16, huh? Like this is too many things. Right. One and more so, thing on my, on my pile. Yeah. And so how do you, how do you break that down first and foremost to help people um, be able to tackle this in a more um, spread out approach, right? We always say when you try to do everything, you end up doing nothing very well. Right, so okay. we think about implementation on a three to five year timeline. And we say, what is the one habit, one small tier one, meaning all staff habit that we could encourage as a staff this year that we know is uh, practical low burden, high impact, and relational, and a great way to role model what it looks like to, to be or live the sort of compassion or, or empathy that we're talking about. Mm -hmm. So for example, 
one of the habits that a lot of schools pick up that we train on is what we call the temperature check. So really simply, uh, once a week is the recommended dosage. <laughs> and as students come in, in lieu of attendance, you would give a little survey. It's uh, your name required on a scale of one to five. How are you doing today? One on the low end, five on the high, required. And then why? Which is optional. You don't have to answer that, but you can. Mm -hmm. And then it takes them to the next page and it gets into the entry task or reflection question or whatever. And of course, this can be uh, adapted up or down depending on grade level and age. You could use emojis. Uh, but the whole premise, of course, would be as the educator to get insight into student need, where they're at, an emotional landscape of the people that you're serving. Mm -hmm. Because if four kids check in at a one, it should change the way you approach your class that day. Yeah. Uh, and if nothing else, like it gives you data to follow up with them afterwards, mm -hmm. even just to check in. Um, so the goal, you know, some teachers might do that or something like it. But the goal for us, and we're thinking about implementation as a much more holistic approach, would be what does it look like to get an entire staff behind that? Well, what we know about adult behavior change is you're going to need accountability, belief, and celebration. Account accountability, which means like, hey, are there systems in place for us to encourage this action ongoing? Belief meaning, do I know why this is important? Do I get the purpose behind this thing? Because if, it's, if I don't understand the purpose of the thing, it's gonna feel like one more thing. Mm -hmm. And then are we celebrating the wins, right? How do we encourage that through accountability? But on the far side, what does it look like to have a victory on this? And how do we celebrate or support those victories? So a bit of a, a, a tangential answer to your question, but to me, as someone that thinks a lot about like the systems of, of ongoing, meaningful culture change, um, that's the approach we take. Over the course of five years, what if we as collectively as a staff adopted one habit per year? And we did it with fidelity. We did it really well and really thoughtfully. And then over the course of five years, not only are we implementing curriculum where we're teaching this to young people, but over time we're also beginning to role model different components of, of these pieces. Mm -hmm. um five years, I will tell you, sounds like a long time for a field with a 40% turnover rate, which early childhood has. But alternatively, as I'm listening to you, I'm thinking, well, maybe that sort of contributes to the turnover rate. If we're all working together on this culture change where we're going to be kinder and more intentional, then maybe folks stick around a little bit longer. Yeah. Exhaustion from purposeful supported work is very different than overwhelm and burnout. Yeah. And the leadership in a building that is driving this work forward, if they know how to support it thoughtfully, right, the work will still be hard. Yeah. And we've had this from schools. Like the work is, is just as hard as it's ever been, but I was more excited to do it. Yeah. And so how do we create the structures where that's real? And then that becomes a, a leadership problem, which is probably a whole different podcast. <laughs> Right, which, which takes it a step, because we talk a lot when we're changing things or introducing new curriculums or systems in early childhood, we talk a lot about buy-in being important, but what you're talking about is, because I think buy-in still puts the burden solely on the people being asked to do the work. So when mm -hmm. you add that layer that you're talking about of administrative support and leadership, that sort of makes it sound more reassuring. <laughs> <laughs> when you know that the yeah. folks at the top are also working through this process with you and totally. not we, checking in to see that you did it. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. The, the distinction there, two, two distinctions come to mind. Uh, Dr. Cook says implementation is not diffusion. Diffusion is a, here's the password. Good luck. Right? Here's the, here's the binder. Give it a try. Uh -huh, the binder. Yes. 
the binder. Uh, <laughs> implementation is about both helping it happen and, and, and making it happen. So leadership has a responsibility to support that work. And then I think there's an important distinction between buy-in and readiness, right? Buy-in is the result of building readiness with the staff. Okay. And readiness is about feeling equipped and enthusiastic about a thing, mm -hmm. right? And sometimes I think we forget that buy-in is, 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 I think, the intersection of both of those things. Sometimes I think buy-in is just like being excited about something. But I can be excited about something, and once I get into it, I feel like I'm in over my head. I don't know what to do. Where do I implement this? How do I do this? Yeah. So we have to feel both equipped and enthusiastic before people start to feel bought in. Uh -huh. All right, that's great. Um, any last thoughts that are really important to you before we wrap up that you'd like to get out there? <laughs> I don't know, I've taken this down an implementation, like an MTSS, multi-tiered <laughs> systems of support, but I'm good. Like I wanna nerd out in all those directions because they, they all relate back to the ultimate work, which is how do we serve young people yeah. Uh, and how do we equip them with the skills to be the most successful, competent, fulfilled people in this world? And I believe education is the number one pathway to a kinder world because the skills we teach today are the behaviors that we experience tomorrow. Yeah. Um, well, I definitely think that listeners are going to um, want to hear more from you and you're welcome back anytime that we can come up with, with topics. It doesn't sound like you'd be sh uh, too, too much, it would be too much of a challenge for you to come up with. <laughs> we got more to talk about having other topics to spend a half an hour with. So again, your book is called Deep Kindness, A Revolutionary Guide for the Way We Think, Talk, and Act in Kindness. And um, where can they find you if they want to find out more other than buying the book, which they should Yeah. Buy? Uh, well, if you're in the education world and interested in that kind of work, characterstrong.com is the organization. And then if you want to check out the book and a bunch of conversations I have with people about kindness and compassion, deepkindness.com, you can find some goodies there too. Yeah. Yeah. Some of them may have seen an interview. Well, by the time this comes out, it won't be this week, but I saw an interview with you on CNN this week. And I was yeah. Like, oh, I'm going to talk to him later this week. And then I felt very important. <laughs> Well, kindness, the word spreading fast. So that's yeah, good news. We need more great. kindness presently. Yes, absolutely. Boy, do we. Um, well, again, thank you for being on. And this has been so much fun. And, um, and the book is really giving me a lot to think about. So I, I hope lots of folks are reading it. And um, thanks, everybody, for coming in and listening to another episode. We'll be back next week. We'll see you all later. And that's the show. Now go get your nerd on. has been an Explorations Early Learning Upstairs Studio production. Oh.